Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. If you came to Professor Helen Thompson's work, as I did, through her role as co-host of the Talking Politics podcast, you'll not be surprised to hear that her new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, exhibits the same and very rare combination of breadth and depth of knowledge that she brought to these conversations over the last six years. As its title suggests, Disorder is a book about the many and varied crises our world is facing. However, by tracing the roots of these crises back over decades rather than years, and by focusing less on the political or economic shocks themselves and more on the systemic and cross-continental fault lines that allowed for and amplified these shocks, disorder acts as a welcome antidote to the short-termist and parochial thinking that has come to define a lot of political analysis. And while reading disorder may not make the crises we face any less frightening, it certainly makes them far less confusing, and that is a source of relief in itself. Professor Helen Thompson, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Adam. I'd like to begin by talking about the the historical moment we find ourselves in, because it's often said that um, every generation considers itself to be sort of on the edge of the precipice. You know, we 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 sort of we all think that our the world that we're living in is the one that is going to sort of uniquely go to go to hell in a handcart. Um, so it was interesting for me to read that you said the genesis of this book was in the summer and autumn of 2016, because as a kind of, let's say, a lay person, that felt to me at the, the, the very sort of precise moment that the, 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 the world was on a precipice or that something, um, that something turned. So I'm just curious, what was it about that particular moment and this particular moment that we're living for you as a, an experienced political analyst and political historian that makes... Th- this particular moment different from previous uh, moments of crises over the last few decades, say? Yeah, I think the, the 2016 moment is is pretty interesting because obviously much of the attention about the shocks in 2016, and clearly there were a succession of shocks in 2016, much of that attention was focused on the Brexit referendum in the June and then the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States in November. But I remember as it was happening at the time that I was really taken in a sort of sense of, crikey, something big's happening here with the attempted coup in Turkey in July Mm. 2016. And particularly the way in which Erdogan really clearly felt abandoned by the United States and the European Union and in some sense, ironically, given the way things now have developed, more supported by Putin. And that seemed to me, given that NATO, sorry, given that Turkey is a NATO member, to be pretty significant geopolitical plate spinning. So my sense in 2016 was that there was a lot more going on than the things that people were both being shocked by and in many ways being in some quarters anyway being outraged by being meaning brexit and and um trump and i i think had a sense both that there was a long history to the brexit and trump moments and that they were distorting our sense of or at least our sense in western europe and north america of what was really significantly changing during the 2010s and they seemed to me and that seemed to me to be primarily geopolitical and obviously there was a story of geopolitical change being told at the middle of the 2010s and it tended to be a story of the rise of Chinese power and the fall of American power 
And I thought that that was also too simplistic, both in relation to overestimating Chinese power and underestimating um, American power. So the task that I set myself was, in a way, was to try to understand those events in 2016 as part of a, of a, of a continuum of history and to try to get some sense of like why the change was happening and a sense of frustration with the conventional interpretations of them. I think if we then move on to now, what I would say is, is that we are living through with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the consequences of not understanding the geopolitics that emerged out of the mm. end of the Cold War. In some sense, I would go further and say it's a reckoning with not actually understanding so much about the Cold War years themselves. But it's certainly for Europe um, and a, a reckoning with a an unwillingness, I would say, even to consider that geopolitical questions mattered, that assumption that in some sense mm globalization i hate using that word but that globalization had changed the world so profoundly that the language of geopolitics didn't make any sense any longer and mm. i think we're learning that that was just a very erroneous interpretation of what the end of the cold war um meant and i do think that there's a connection then between the 2016 story um and the now because part of the 2016 story was if we just take the turkish moment was about um the growing Turkish-Russian alliance, well, alliance would be going too far, but accommodation, let's call it um, that. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, had destabilising consequences in Europe and it had destabilising consequences in the Middle East. And it was an instance of the fact that Russian power was much more significant um, than many people wanted to see. And the irony was, in mm -hmm. regard to the US election in the 2016, there was an obsession with Russian power, the, in some sense, the idea of Russian power was being projected into the heart of the White House itself once Trump had won. But that seemed to me to go hand in hand with not taking actual Russian geopolitical power in Europe and the Middle East sufficiently seriously. That's um, the interesting word accommodation, because I have the feeling when thinking about a lot of the sort of the the geopolitical relations you described, particularly in the, the first part of the book, that sort of there are a lot of accommodations going on between uh, different sort of power blocks in a way like there's sort of um, even even if the um, the relationship between the European Union and Russia and the United States and China are not necessarily um, uh, friendly or confrontational they sort of seem to meet in the middle of this kind of accommodation that they kind of they know they have to work with each other and around each other but don't want to sort of either define themselves as either allies or enemies. No, I think that that's true. And I think that there were a lot of accommodations really made by the Soviet Union and the United States during the, the Cold War um, years. And we're seeing what that means at the moment in Russia-Ukraine um, or Russia's evasion of, mm -hmm. of, of Ukraine and the fact that NATO won't get involved in it. One of the logics, if you like, of mutually assured destruction, which had come into place by the 1960s, um, when the Soviet Union had acquired intercontinental ballistic missiles was that the United States and the Soviet Union never militarily engaged in the same place. Mm. Um, they, they fought wars by proxies, but if one was there, the other wasn't there. So, for instance, the Soviet Union might have provided a great deal of support to North Vietnam, but it didn't engage militarily in Vietnam when the United States mm. was involved in the, in, the, in, the, in the Vietnam War. And that logic is being applied right now in the war in Ukraine in the sense that NATO is doing everything, pretty much everything that it can without involving itself directly mm -hmm. in the war. There are lines that are being drawn and those lines that are being drawn are pretty much the same lines that were being drawn um, in the Cold War when it came to confrontations between the Soviet Union and, 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 and the United States. And so mm -hmm. I think that that's uncomfortable to a certain way of thinking about international politics, particularly, a, let's just call it for shorthand, a liberal way of thinking about international um, politics, mm. where you have periods of economic interdependence that are supposed to encourage peaceful relations. And then when they break down, that you want stark moral confrontations between the forces 
in some sense of good and evil. I mean, sometimes I think it does get cast in, in, in those terms, but that was never the mm-hmm. way that the Cold War played out, even though the language of the Soviet Union having an evil empire, to use that phrase that Donald Reagan used, um, was part of the rhetoric around the Cold War, the complexities, the, I mean, the, the ways in which the Soviet Union and the, and the United States actually interacted with each other were much more complicated than that rhetoric would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um- in the, uh, I said a moment ago that um, I mentioned the first part of the book, and um, we should say that it's, so it's divided into three histories. So a geopolitical history centered around energy, an economic history, and a history of democracy. Um, were these was this structure there from the beginning when you had the idea of the book? Did you was is it sort of an approach you would have as a political scientist that you realized you needed to look at it from these three directions, or was it something that? evolved as your understanding of the the situation developed? No, I started with this idea of having different histories from the beginning. I actually was going to try to have a fourth history, which would have been more um, cultural, perhaps sort of civilizational, mm-hmm. more on the cultural end of civilizational and partly a critique of civilization or the perpetual would, would have been part of that um, history. But I decided that that was both too complicated in itself and would be much more difficult to draw out the interactions between the different spheres than Mm. if I concentrated on the three in which I did. But I did start from the moment of actually writing with the idea that there were going to be three histories. Um, And the reason for that was that I think that you can't understand the last decade without thinking in terms of all of geopolitics, in terms of the world economy, and in terms of the democratic politics in Western democracies, because I'm not engaging with democracies in other parts um, of the world. But if you tried to tell all the history at the same time, so to speak, then it would just become a mess. So the way that I decided to go about it was to say, okay, I'll tell the three histories. They don't all start in the same place either, because I think that the fault lines have got a longer history um, with the mm-hmm. geopolitical um, situation. And then what I'll do in the conclusion is basically go back and say something about the interactions between mm-hmm. those um, histories so that it comes back together as one history in the conclusion, although the conclusion is also, as you know, Adam, in part about the future. I'm curious about those, those starting points as well, because um, as you say, each of the three history starts at a at a different point. Uh, so the, the geopolitical one centered around energy has essentially as its starting point, the, uh, the moment of transition of sort of industrialized economies from coal-based economies to oil-based economies, or rather having oil as their sort of their prince, becoming their principal uh, energy source. Um, so the way, the way I understood it, and um, tell, tell me if I, if I, if I have haven't got this right or if I'm oversimplifying it, but that there, you chose this as a starting point because it marked a kind of a fracture or a sort of dislocation, whereas before the, the the big economies and the big powers also had readily accessible uh, coal supplies on their territories or on territories that they controlled. And the the big change with the when, when oil came to prominence was that actually these big powers didn't have ready access to to this energy would that be a absolutely i mean partly because a lot of the story that i've ended up telling that i'm competent to tell is about europe then i wanted to start from the moment in some sense in which i would argue that europe's geopolitical problems really internally really begin Um, and that is the point in which it's becoming clear that oil is going to be the military resource that matters. I think that matters mm-hmm. a lot earlier than actually than the question of oil fueling um, economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people like Winston Churchill understand at the beginning, who was someone who thought quite hard about these questions at the beginning of the 20th century or in the first decade or so of the 20th century, um, was that a world in which oil would be the basis of navies, so navies would be... Um, um, oil, that ships would be oil fueled rather than that they would be um, coal fueled would be one um, in which the British were in a very difficult position. Britain at the time was the world's obviously predominant naval power, but Britain had no oil. Um, the United States did, and the United States was becoming a, a naval power. 
So Churchill wanted, uh, in some sense, the British Empire to have an oil strategy to go hand in hand um, with its naval position. And I think you can see much the same worry in, in Germany as, um, as, as well. I think the French were a little bit later to come to um, awareness of it. But the bottom line issue for these European imperial um, powers at the start of the, the 20th century is, is that the energy resource that is going to dominate the 20th century is going to be the necessary basis of being able to project military power is one that they don't have internally. Um, and Britain has some in, the, in, um, in its empire in, in Burma, but mm-hmm. beginning not anywhere else. It has a sphere of influence in Persia, where oil is discovered in um, 1908. And a significant part of what the European powers, the European imperial powers, I should say, are trying to do in the first third of the 20th century is, is to try to use their empires in order to control oil resources. Mm-hmm. Very well aware of the fact that the United States and Russia have their own oil resources. The only European power that has internal oil um, in the first decades of the 20th century is Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it's in um, Galicia. Uh, and it's not very well developed oil industry. It's disconnected from um, the, the sea, from Austria's um, ports. Uh, and it's not particularly useful to them well yeah but but britain germany and then later france is is the the idea that the oil is what the energy source that matters and that they don't have it that in some sense puts the fear of god into them and it Mm -hmm. explains particularly the british and french well actually i'd say it explains all of the british french and german obsession with the middle east during the course Mm -hmm. of the first world war but it's the british and the french that established themselves a position at the end of it and germany shut out of the middle east and i I think that then has really quite profound consequences for interwar year mm-hmm. European history and the disadvantage, very disadvantaged position that Germany finds itself in. Mm-hmm. One um one thing that kept coming back to me when uh, when I was reading, particularly around around the sort of the build up to the uh, the First World War and the kind of the systemic stresses and the, um, the the sort of the fault lines which were being which were being tested by this kind of this shift in um, in the economies was um, and if you'll excuse the reference was a, was a a line from uh, Blackadder goes forth um, so there's a moment where I think P- Private Baldrick asks you know why the war started mm. and there's a line which I hadn't given too much thought to before which was that Blackadder said so the truth was it was just too much effort not to have a war. Um, and that just kept coming back to me because it feels very much like in, in, in that situation, but also in the sort of the as we go through the, the 20th century and we see these kind of rearrangement of power blocks and these kind of uh, stresses coming to the surface, it's coming to the surface, the fault lines kind of rupturing is that in a sense, these the disruption and the disorder comes from when the. The previous system, which had been established and which had perhaps a certain inherent stability for the time it was established, is no longer fit for purpose because of uh, disruptive forces. Yeah, I mean, I think that one way of looking at it would be to say that the the European imperial powers um, that were successful and were able to um, build those empires without needing to extract energy from abroad, they weren't they weren't set up to extract coal from abroad because they had coal domestically Mm -hmm. in in abundance in case of Britain and in um, Germany. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that those European imperial powers didn't engage in resource extraction. Mm -hmm. Clearly that they they did. But where energy was concerned, it wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. So what then changes uh, in the first part of the 20th century is... The, the bids for the European of the European powers either to use their empires in ways that would allow them to control oil mm-hmm. or to acquire an empire, as in the case of Germany, that would allow them to um, do that. And, and that's pretty destabilizing, particularly in a context in which the United States is a rising power and is going to want to try to circumscribe these European imperial um, And that tussle between the European position and the American position goes on all the way to the Suez Mm -hmm. um, crisis, 
where you have the British and the French saying, backed crucially by West Germany in this, saying, look, acting against Egypt is um, to protect um, access to the Suez Canal and oil coming up the Suez Canal is absolutely essential mm-hmm. for our energy security interests. And you have an American president, President Eisenhower, saying you're just behaving like imperial powers and you need to learn that the world is going beyond empire and you've got to be you you you've got to in some sense get with the the, the post the, the post second world war post imperial um world uh, now the consequence then of that from the point of view of the west european countries is as well i'm not saying they ever thought fine but they they need still to get oil from somewhere and they need to have some sense of security around that and 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 that's where we see the the first really decisive turn towards soviet oil mm. and this building up of the the soviet western european energy relationship centered around germany it starts off being about oil and then it becomes about gas in the 1960s and the the 1970s and we know that we live in that world that just shattered in mm. the last um in the last couple of um, weeks um and i know that i'm not trying to turn myself into a, a defender of the german position here quite the contrary um all i would say is is that that dependency upon what was soviet and then became russian energy has a history mm-hmm. and it has an understandable um history or at least an explicable history mm-hmm. let's say that that let, let's just put it in 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 those terms the fact that it encouraged delusions about illusions about the nature of Russian power doesn't detract from the fact is is that we can understand or we can explain why it was that there was a turn to Soviet um, energy because in a world um, in which oil was becoming by this point very important to crucial to economies and not just to military power mm. um, and the Middle East was becoming a riskier place. Uh, to import oil from, then West European governments, particularly Germ- West Germany, sought, on, sought an alternative, and this was the one that they took. Mm. And it's not that these, you can't say, well, the alternative, they, they couldn't at that point have, uh, have said, okay, we'll import more oil from the United States, because the United States didn't want them to import oil from the United States. The United States didn't want European countries to, or Japan to be importing oil from the Western Hemisphere at all so not just not from the united states but not from mexico and not from venezuela because the united states in american thinking was we want western hemisphere oil for the western hemisphere and for ourselves in in Mm. in particular so the choice really for the west europeans was it the oil can come from the soviet union or it can come from the middle east Mm -hmm. and that's um it is in learning that history as well and while reading this book that you get a sense about the current situation about the incredible strategic importance of Ukraine, um, both for the, the Russians and the Europeans as a way of sort of, of transporting this um, this oil and gas. Um, one thing that, that really struck me, and obviously I was reading this with a certain sort of, um, I guess, sort of confirmation bias, because I, I started reading the book, I think, on the day that uh, the, the invasion began. Um, and even though the book was uh, researched and, and written before the the war began, and you know, with the caveat that of course there had been the uh, invasion of Crimea a few years before, and and uh, you know, Russian influence and interest in in Ukraine was was clearly signaled. There was definitely a sense uh, while reading it that almost you could feel the sort of the the sort of inevitability of Ukraine becoming the flashpoint for these uh, for these tensions and these and these fault lines. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, if we go back to what I said at the beginning, when I was first conceiving of the idea of writing um, a book, which is probably sometime in like 2017, uh, maybe to early 2018, I was very much focused on the Turkey question mm-hmm. in terms of the the difficulties that the European Union has geopolitically. It's not that I didn't have a, a strong awareness of Ukraine, the the trans the gas transit issues around um, Ukraine, but in terms of the long history that I wanted to tell, I was more preoccupied with Turkey than I was with Ukraine. And then when I 
started really properly writing the book, which was in the summer of 2019. And I was writing the first draft of the geopolitics third of it, so the geopolitical history. Um, once I got to 1989, 1991, then it was almost like on a week-by-week -week basis as I was doing that, I, I was thinking, actually, Ukraine runs all the way through this story. Mm. And so I actually did quite a few edits that were basically trying to sharpen up the Ukraine narrative to make it all the way run through the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the post-Cold War um, chapter. And I think there's two reasons for that. One of them is quite specific and one of them is more general. And I think we're seeing them both play out now. The first of them is, is that it's just such a momentous change when those pipelines that have been constructed for oil and gas during the 1950s, 60s, and well, that's really the 60s and 70s and the first part of the 80s. They've been constructed by the Soviet Union to sell oil and gas to Western Europe. And obviously, to go west, they need to go through Ukraine and Belarus um, as well, and then into, into Poland. And once the Soviet Union is dissolved in 1991, those pipelines are now going through an independent country that is Ukraine. And from the Russian point of view, which is obviously now Russia and not Soviet Union, that is a really consequential change mm -hmm. that right from the start is, is that the most important export that they have exports, I should say, that they have by far, have now got a vulnerability because transportation of those exports involves another country and another country with which Russia had difficult relations from the beginning of the dissolution of the, the, the Soviet Union. And right from the beginning, there was an issue about Crimea uh, and Sevastopol um, mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a port. So that's the sort of the particular thing that meant that that was an ongoing um, that, that from the start was going to be an ongoing fault line made obviously um, much more intense once Putin though some of this started before Putin moved to try to remove Ukraine from the transit system mm -hmm. um, so that Putin has been systematically trying to cut Ukraine out he didn't completely succeed in doing that but um, he had to make a big concession about that at the end of 2019 to keep transit through Ukraine until at least 2024. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just a story that begins from the moment that Ukraine is an independent republic through to now. The more general reason why I came to understand, and this is perhaps what I didn't see so clearly, I think, when I started, why Ukraine is such a, um, a fault line, Um is because Ukraine's independence gets to the heart of the question of the states that sit between Germany and Russia. Mm. And obviously, historically, in that territorial space, there has been a great deal of change over the centuries. Mm -hmm. Independent states have come and they have gone and been swallowed up by one or other of Germany or Russia or the Soviet Union. Indeed, if you think about the Nazi-Soviet pact, it, you know, it was... Um, in part, a uh, an agreement to um, divide what is present, or at least part of what is present, um, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And so, a world in which Germany moved away from, I would say, taking military power seriously, in conjunction with a world in which Russia wanted, from the start, even before Putin to reduce its dependency upon Ukraine for gas transportation. Um, that looked to me like, like, in some sense, like an accident waiting to happen, mm. because trying to preserve the independence of states that sit between Germany and Russia has just historically always been a big deal. Mm. It's not straightforward. And if you're going to have an aggressive Russia that has got issues with Ukraine, and meanwhile, a Germany um, that is both is willing to um, acquiesce with Putin um, in cutting Ukraine out of transit, at least transit of gas to Germany by building the Nord Stream pipelines under the um, Baltic Sea, doesn't want to take military questions seriously, much reduces its defence um, expenditure. That seemed to me to be a fairly clear fault line mm -hmm. and one that was then compounded in a way 
by saying from 2009 onwards, oh, yes, we'll, we will, though, try to bring Ukraine into closer economic alignment with the European Union. So pursuing effectively a version of associate membership for Ukraine, which is what brings the 2013-14 crisis in Ukraine, which culminates in the annexation of Crimea to um, ahead. So you can just see through the Ukraine story a set of incoherence in the geopolitical positions that the, the European Union adopts towards Russia in general and Ukraine in particular. And with all of that in mind, were you still caught off guard by the events of a couple of weeks ago? Like what would you, once you kind of established these, these fault lines and these tensions, you saw it as a potential flashpoint. Did, was there still something about the sort of the, the scale or the rapidity of the invasion or did it sort of make sense in, given the thought process you'd gone through? Um, I was shocked by the um, scale of what Putin seems to be trying to achieve in Ukraine. I mean, I don't claim to be at all a, a Putin watcher. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that there obviously were a lot of people who were in the business, shall we say, of analysing Putin as a character, as a as a strategist, tactician, mm -hmm. who were very taken aback by the decision that he's mm -hmm. made um, to act so, should we say, uh, in such a, from his point of view, looks like cavalier way mm -hmm. and in such a destructive way. So I think if you, I think that with the, with the caveats in mind that I wouldn't ever thought that I was in a position to understand the way that Putin was actually thinking. I would have thought it was more likely that he was going to sort of formalise what is effectively already was quite Russian control over quite a lot of the Donbass and perhaps establish a land connection between um, Russia, the rest of Russia and Crimea. Hmm. So I think the scale of what he has done has has surprised me but i'm not surprised by the fact that he was willing to use um military power to change the territorial borders mm. of of russia and i think that i'm not surprised that he thought that the european response to that would be quite weak i think he might have misjudged that but I'm mm -hmm. not surprised because he had basically been able to do what he wanted with the pipeline issue for the best part of 20 years. I'd like to bring in the, the second uh, history, the, the economic um, history, um, which in a sense uh, begins at sort of uh, the Bretton Woods uh, conference with the Bretton Woods agreements to sort of to give a certain, I guess, monetary uh, financial stability to the world so setting the you know essentially establishing the the gold standard and the um and uh, fixing the exchange rate um against the against the dollar and then the disruption that is sort of provoked when that is um when that is abandoned in in 1973 um it struck me that there's similar things going on perhaps in a way or similar forces at work between what happened with the uh the the transition from coal to oil and what happened with the the movement from the Bretton Woods agreement to the the the, the floating exchange rate, which was almost that between when the Bretton Woods uh, uh, agreements were 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 signed, that that was something that was a system which seemed right for that time at a moment of sort of American dominance and uh, the rise of the dollar and something which would perhaps give a certain stability to the world economy, which then jumping forward 30 years was perhaps no longer fit for purpose because the world had changed around the agreements. No, very much so. And I think that one of the things that I wanted to stress here is that there is an energy component to this mm. too. So that if you go back to 1944, when the agreements have been made at the Bretton Woods Conference in, in, in New Hampshire, um, what the world economy looks like it will be like uh, in the post when the wars actually come to 
an end was going to be a world in which the United States was by far the most significant economic power and it would have a large trade surplus and that other countries um, would need dollars in order to buy American um, exports. Um, and in some sense, the, the international financial institutions, as they were conceived anyway at Bretton Woods in 1944, were there to, like the International Monetary Fund in particular, were there to provide some financial support at crisis moments for the West European countries in living in this asymmetrical world. And they were also going to be helped in living in this asymmetrical world by the ability to control the flow of capital in and out of their, in and out of their um, countries. And Bretton Woods has its own tensions, particularly by the 1960s, the growth of the euro dollar markets in London, which means there's a lot of unregulated capital like sloshing around between um, banks, which means the system isn't really working as it's supposed to. But something else is going on by the time it ends, and that is, is that the United States is going to, is on, starting to become a large importer of oil. Mm. Uh, so the Americans, the United States domestic production then peaked in 1970. Obviously, it, that was later surpassed by what happened during the, the shale boom. But from that point on, from the 1970 through to, let's say, the early 2010s, the United States was was first on a trajectory to becoming the world's largest oil importer and then was the world's largest um, oil um, importer. And that meant that it was going to run significant trade deficits uh, and it meant that it had a strong interest in still being able to purchase that oil from abroad in dollars. Mm. And I think... But it was, would have simply been extraordinarily difficult to keep Bretton Woods running uh, in a world in which its fundamental premise is fundamental that the United States was the trade surplus country and that underpinning that the United States was domestically pretty much self-sufficient in oil, that that assumption had been completely turned upside down. And what we see then in the 70s is that both in some sense causes of Bretton Woods end are in play is the, the problems about the adjustment to the United States becoming on the road to becoming the world's largest oil importer and the instability that's generated in these euro dollar markets in um, in London and put them together and it's not possible for the for, for that for the for the, for the for the international monetary and financial system that was devised at Bretton Woods um, to survive and that means that we move into a, a rather different monetary world it's a monetary world in which there is no metal underpinning any currency any longer because mm -hmm. the heart, if you like, or the centre of the Bretton Woods system had been the convertibility of dollars um, into, into gold. And then the 1970s, as we know, is a decade in which there will be significant oil price shocks as a result of the, the geopolitical weapon that Saudi Arabia and the other Arab countries have got and that used through OPEC, the oil cartel, and then as a result of the Iranian revolution in the in the latter part of the the decade. So the monetary and the energy shifts are, I think, run together through the 1970s with mm -hmm. destabilizing consequences that that continue beyond that. Mm. One thing that um I found very interesting was that something else was also happening during the 70s was the kind of what might be described as the sort of the rise of what has come to be known as sort of neoliberal yeah. ideology. Um, and you actually say at one point the sort of making the story of the 1970s, the economic story about this ideological ascendancy is sort of downplaying the the causes that you, you would like to focus on. But it, it sort of also made me think that generally throughout this book, there's very little reference to uh, political ideology. What I might say is that the layman, the sort of, you know, the, the 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 struggle between the the left and the right, if you like, between like communism and capitalism uh, throughout the um, the twentieth century. Do you think this is a narrative which is given far too much weight in the way that we we talk about um, the history of the global history of the twentieth century um, when we're when we're discussing politics? I think there's two different things here. One's about the geopolitics, and one's about like domestic 
politics or the domestic politics of Western democracies. On the geopolitics, I think that the idea that the Cold War was an ideological struggle between communism and capitalism is overblown. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think that particularly is consequential in the way in which the end of the Cold War is interpreted, because there was a kind of Western triumphalist narrative that said essentially, suggested essentially that the idea of democracy and liberalism had won out over the idea um, of um, communism. And mm-hmm. I don't think it was a victory of ideas in the in in the Cold War. Is is that Soviet um, geopolitical power? ran into a crisis and one that in terms of its end final end anyway had significant energy causes to it because of the fact that the Soviet Union in the middle of the 1980s was the world's largest oil producer and the prices of oil crashed and wrecked the finances of the Soviet state at a time when Gorbachev was trying to pursue his reform agenda and made it incredibly difficult for him to um, succeed. So I think that when the ideological conflict is interpreted through the West winning, so to speak, I think that's very misleading uh, in terms of why the Cold War came to an end and why the dissolution of the Soviet Union took place and prior to that, the end of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe. I would say in terms of democratic politics in, in Western democracies, I don't want to underplay the conflict between left and right and I think that what we see in the the politics um, in Western Europe after the 1970s is a shift away from the left that the trade unions power is pretty decisively um, weakened there's a sense in which even parties of the centre-left are just doing things that are pretty much the same as what parties of the centre-right would do when um, in power and in the end, there will be a political you know, like backlash against that. Like most clearly, you can see that in Britain with mm. Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the, the Labour Party and repudiating the whole New Labour um, project. I think, though, that the problem with the neoliberalism thesis about the 1970s is not that it misses the mark in saying that there's a a, a shift in some sense to the right mm-hmm. uh, and less of an emphasis on what the state can do and more of an emphasis on what markets can do. I still think in its own terms that's a little bit overblown as a claim. But I think that the crucial thing I want to say about the 70s in this respect is that the conditions in which those shifts took place has actually got a material foundation Mm. to it in the changes in the monetary system, the financial system, and the the energy changes. So even if you take someone like Milton Friedman, who's often seen, obviously, as one of the most important neoliberal thinkers, though in the 1970s that word wasn't being used to mm-hmm. describe him, it was more monetarist or new, the, new, mm-hmm. the, the new right. He was very, very critical of um, federal government intervention in the American economy. But if you look at what he was saying, a great deal of that criticism is being directed at the controls that were put on in the 1970s by the American federal government to deal with the energy crisis. So intense control over the production and distribution of oil uh, itself um, and um, gasoline Mm -hmm. uh, down to like which states could get it for which purposes. So, yeah, he yes, he had a very strong uh, critique that markets should be doing things the state was doing, but it was very much an argument that was being made in the context of the energy crisis. His argument was if you allow prices to rise, um, then there'll be more um, oil produced. And if there's all more oil produced, we'll get rid of these shortages. So even something that looks like, it's not that it's not got an ideas basis to the argument, but it's still been, it's still a response to these underlying material shocks in the 1970s. Mm. And in this case, the way in which the American federal government had responded to that, to to, to, to those um, shock. So if there's a 
if you like, a, a shift in ideas going on, it's still a shift in ideas. It's got a material origins, mm. material origins. There's so much more I would like to talk to you about from this section, but I'm conscious of the time going on and I would uh, like to spend some time in the, the third story um, in the book as well, which is one of uh, about democracies. Um, and it felt to me when I got to this section that there was a, perhaps a slight shift in tone of the book, in a sense, it's sort of it's at least at the beginning of the section that it's sort of it's um, perhaps it is to do with that sort of that material grounding, whereas when the when the uh, democracy section begins i feel we went a little bit more into the sort of let's say the the philosophical uh, underpinning of what uh, what constitutes a democracy um and one thing i found very interesting in the analysis was the um the inclusion the essential inclusion it seems of this concept of the nation uh, as being part of the the concept of democracy and i think the nation um however however one might define it is something that a lot of people, I think, particularly you know, on, let's say, the, the liberal side of politics, I feel quite squeamish about, mm. actually, and might like to think of this idea of democracy being in some way divorceable from this idea of the nation. But but from the way you from where you describe it, the two seem to be sort of necessarily linked. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you look at it conceptually um, for a moment and then look at it historically, mm-hmm. after that, if we look at it conceptually, the idea of representative democracy rests on some notion that there are there is a people mm. and that the people get to choose their representatives. And it's those representatives who then make decisions. That means that something has to happen to identify who the people is, because it's clearly not the people of the whole world. It's mm. not the people. The people isn't humanity. Um, in a in a democracy, we do live in a world democracy. So that seems to me to just be conceptually the case. Now, if we move from the level of the concepts to the level of history, and we look at what happened when representative democracies first started to take shape, the answer that was given to that question of who the people is is the people was the nation mm-hmm. um now you can maybe argue that it didn't have to be that way but pretty clearly historically it was that way and i think for a long time you know well i would say into the second half of the 20th century the idea of the people the word of the, the word the people and the word the nation were quite interchangeable mm-hmm. um, with each other I think then that what happens for a number of different reasons, some of which arise in relation to the problem, the economic problems that are caused by the the, the tumult of the 1970s, is that in some quarters, as you said, the idea of the nation gets discredited. Even though I'd say you can see it very clearly in the rebellions against Soviet rule in Mm -hmm. Eastern Europe, it's very much... The language of the German nation is very much part of, of um, Helmut Kohl's rhetoric around German reunification. Mm-hmm. But as you say, enough people get squeamish about the idea of the nation. But although that's happening, no other alternative comes into play mm-hmm. to ground then who the people are. So even though some people, clearly not all people, quite the contrary, um, don't like the idea of the nation and they would like to separate the idea of democracy from the idea of the nation, then it it doesn't happen. And in some sense, I would say it perhaps can't happen. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons then why uh, there was in my view, some quite shallow interpretation of what was going on in 2016 with Brexit and Trump was that this narrative took hold that somehow nationalism had kind of come in as this sort of alien disease and infected liberal democracy Mm. without that historical awareness that actually 
democracies, representative democracies, have been dependent upon the idea of the nation, and thus it couldn't be an alien intervention. Mm. Now, that isn't to say, that isn't to justify the kind of nativist arguments that someone like Donald Trump was making. It's just saying that I was just wanting to say here that we need to understand the historical relationship and we need to understand why it has become more difficult um, for clear ideas of the nation to sustain individual democracies. Because what happens to any articulation, specific articulation of nationhood, is, is that the conditions that underpin it when it first comes to the fore get undermined in time. Mm-hmm. The, the question of who the people are in actual sense of how that they understand who that they are, where in some sense that they come from, changes mm-hmm. um, in time. And it makes the, 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 the project of nationhood a lot, lot more difficult. And mm-hmm. given that in the post-war period, in the post-Second World War period, that governments have tried to deal with some of these problems, particularly, I would say, in Europe, um, by saying, okay, we will articulate through the way in which we manage the economy a sense of economic nationhood. So, for instance, taking responsibility for full employment Mm. or creating sustaining welfare states and the idea that if you are a citizen of a state, that the state takes responsibility for you from, to use beverages language, from the cradle to the grave, once that became much more difficult, then the, the should we just say the darker side of nationhood perhaps mm-hmm. comes back to the fore. But it doesn't change the fact that you need some sense, not least in order for citizens to be willing to accept that when their side loses an election, that that's okay. And you need something. You're not going to have nationhood to replace it, and 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 and, and nothing actually came. So what we ended up with, I think, was the residues of nationhood plus a reaction against mm. it. It feels almost as if it was the kind of the the neglect of nationhood that sort of allowed it to perhaps kind of fester and sort of um, become this kind of this, this slightly sort of dark concept. That you I, think that, I think there's definitely something in that argument, yes. Um, you, one of the, the thinkers you, you reference is uh, Machiavelli. Um, and you say that he thought that sort of um, republics, in order to sustain themselves against time, had to had to change and had to adapt. And maybe that sort of feeds into this idea of um, yeah, that sort of neglect of of nationhood in a way. Um, but I, I just like to sort of broaden that idea to a, a lot of the things we talked about, you know, whether it be uh, economic or geopolitical. Do you think these kind of there's something sort of inherent to geopolitical, economic, democratic systems that essentially systemic stresses will build up until they rupture? Or do you think sort of gifted uh, politicians who have a certain foresight to have a certain idea are, would, are able to sort of, as Machiavelli suggested, sort of protect the, their societies uh, against these kind of shocks by adapting them uh, sort of in time? I mean, I think more more the second than the first, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that I think that politics generates problems of political judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we say, well, who's got good political judgment? It, in part, it's the people who can do those things that are necessary to stabilise underlyingly mm. disorderly, if you like, um, situations and I think that um, it is interesting that Machiavelli also thought that whilst it was necessary to adapt it was also sometimes the people who did the reforming could actually make things worse mm. and he picks the, his critique of the Gracchi brothers really works mm-hmm. um, on that basis the caveat I would put in terms of political judgment, I mean, it's not it's not a complete caveat, but it's a partial caveat, is that I think some of these fault lines, particularly around energy and the, 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 the those that are now generated by the attempted energy transition away from fossil fuels, are so difficult um, that I don't think it would be 
reasonable to expect anybody, individuals, politicians, judgment to be quite up to the, the, the should we just say, the demands of the situation. <laughs> because you know, if we're really serious about net zero, that, that is a, a, an energy revolution unlike anything in human history. And given that energy is so fundamental to human history, and it's certainly fundamental to modern human history because of the rupture that was effectively made when we moved into a fossil fuel world in some sense i think that that kind of like resets time mm. and it speeds everything um up i i think it would be um to expect any you know individual or set of of politicians to to have judgment that was completely up to this challenge i think would be setting the bar you know extraordinarily high mm. so in some sense i think there were there are structural problems that are going to be very difficult to deal with whoever's in charge mm -hmm. on the other hand i would say um that there were decisions that could have been made uh in individual democracies judgments that could have been made about the way the world was changing and the consequences of that and the disruptive consequences of that in particular that might have made a difference for instance I would say that w there was no necessary reason um, why American presidents had to be so cavalier um, about the integration of China into the world economy mm -hmm. and the impact that that was likely to have on American um, manufacturing sector and manufacturing employment. And part of the reason why that they made the judgments that they did was because they took sides in a distributional conflict and furred the interests of corporate America that wanted to relocate production to China. Mm -hmm. And, uh, over the interests of American manufacturing um, workers, so I wouldn't want to take that. I don't want to take the the, the politics, um, the political contest out of that at all. One thing uh, I would like to speak about just before we finish is um, the other kind of crises, I guess, that uh, came during the writing of the book, which was, of course, the pandemic. Mm. Now um, we have, you know, we talked a lot about the sort of the systemic fault lines, and you know, a lot of these um, crises and shocks could have been in some way predictable. And well, with the pandemic, the, the the fact that a pandemic was due was, you know, was no secret. Sort of experts in the field seem to be speaking about that for uh for, for quite a few years. Um it seems to me in some way a different kind of shock to the system than something that's sort of like the um, you know, like the the, the transition to oil or like the, you know, the uh, transition to sort of floating exchange rates. Was that sort of in, for that reason was it difficult to sort of to integrate that into a story where sort of uh, systemic shock, uh, shocks and fault lines uh, play such a play such a fundamental role yeah i think for the sort of the second two weeks of march of 2020 i was sort of thought what on earth am i going to do with this book <laughs> because if you like set yourself up to sort of write a long history of the present political moment, which is essentially mm -hmm. what I had done, and then the present political moment changes out of all recognition. I, I was, you know, throwing my arms up in despair uh, in, in that sense. I think what happened though, and it happened reasonably quickly actually, um, was that I saw that or observed that what was happening in terms of the economic, geopolitical and democratic fallout of the pandemic was actually fitting into the story that I was telling. So even though it was a shock of the kind that I hadn't got any story to tell and wasn't engaging um, with, uh, it was bringing certain tensions really right to the fore. So for instance, mm -hmm. uh, I'd become in the economic part really dwelling um, on the issue of how China had become integrated essentially into the euro dollar system post 2008. Uh, and the euro dollar system worked on the assumption that the Inter Federal Reserve Board was the international lender of last resort. Mm. And that that happened via dollar swaps. China didn't have a dollar swap. So I was already a bit preoccupied with the question well, if and when we get to the next financial crisis, is the Fed going to? effectively bail China out and would mm. that politically be possible in the context of Donald Trump's presidency and although the Fed didn't bail China out it did ex in the sense of providing a direct dollar swap it did indirectly provide facilities that would have allowed China um, to borrow similarly I'd been 
spent quite a bit of time, as you know, on the issue of the German constitutional court. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, not that long in um, to the, 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 the pandemic, but whether it was now, whether it was April or May, I think maybe, um, 2020, the German Constitutional Court gave its verdict on QE and saying it was unconstitutional under under German um, basic law. And then we had a you know the recovery fund as a response to that. So that was another of my stories that was was coming to that that, that was coming to uh, a head, so mm-hmm. to speak. So the more those things that happened, the more I saw. Well, by the time the German Constitutional Court one, I'd already figured out what to do. Um, that the way to in, incorporate the pandemic was not to start trying to write a long history of how we have a pandemic, but look at how the fallout was part of the long history that I was telling, and then it didn't actually prove that difficult. Mm-hmm. It's um, there's there's a moment you use the term uh, the. Um... Uh, you talk about understanding the disruptive flows arising from the post-2018 economic world and their advantageous fallout during uh, during the pandemic. Um, and I, I was also put in mind of the um, the way after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the, the way that um, certain things within the European Union and certain sort of uh, things within the, sort of the West generally, which have perhaps been sort of uh, written off, had suddenly sort of almost been sort of rushed into into um, fruition. And I'm just curious, do you think that it is possible to have a sort of a shock of a sort of systemic uh, proportions, but then have a kind of a positive or, you know, on balance positive fallout as, as a result? Like could, for example, the uh, disastrous invasion of Ukraine in some way hasten some sort of um, positive fallout, for example, f- for the European Union. Yeah, I mean, I think on the pandemic, the the issue was that it was possible to have, well, put it quite simply, it was possible to shut down the world economy largely mm-hmm. um, because central banks had already engaged in these huge quantitative easing programs that was facilitating um, governments borrowing, you know, vast sums of money. I think it's quite difficult to see how we economically could have responded to the pandemic in the way in which happened outside a world of quantitative easing mm. and the general monetary um, environment. On the on the European Union and now, I mean, on the one hand, I'd say yes to your question in that there clearly is a reckoning that is taking place right in front of our eyes with European energy dependency upon Russia and we have a a number of countries, even the Italian government, which in some sense, you know, got a dependency that went even deeper than Germany's, turning around and saying, we've got to break away from Russia where energy um, is concerned. I mean, I have to say, I think all this will be easier said than done, mm-hmm. but that's a, uh, another matter. I would say, though, the reason why that this looks like a unifying moment for the European Union is because the, the view that has prevailed in the European Union amidst its divisions, amidst its fault lines, has been essentially, to put it crudely, the Polish view and that the, of Russia and that the German view of Russia has shattered, mm. and as has the French. Um, and that you know, Germany has ditched 50 years of its foreign policy essentially in the last week. Um, Macron's whole concept of the idea of what the European project was in a world of superpower rivalry between the United States and China depended upon some kind of, not even I would just say accommodation, but detente um, Mm -hmm. with Russia. Again, completely shattered. So there is a a new EU position and there's more unity to it than we would have imagined. But the unity has come because one side of the divide is just completely lost. Hmm. Uh, and the other side of the divide, which is, is we have to take Russia, Russia, Russia very, very seriously, and we're not, from their point of view, spending so much time worrying about the Eastern Mediterranean, um, has um, has won. Now, what hmm. I would say is, is that I don't think this Eastern Mediterranean issue and the issues around Turkey have gone away, and it will be, you might, ex- we might expect less unity when both of these problems have got to be dealt with. Of the Russia issue and the Turkey issue have both got to be dealt with at the at the same time. Mm-hmm. But for the time being, 
the poll, so to speak, have went out over the Germans and the French over mm. how to think about Russia as an issue for the EU. Helen Thompson, that is all we've got time for. I could talk about this book for hours, and it is actually one of the the rare books. As soon as I finished it, I started reading it again oh, because nice. I just felt there was there was so much in there that I uh, I, I felt like I missed out on on the on the first reading, and it feels like it's um, in some way sort of crystallised um, my understanding of certain. Um, at least certain events uh, taking place in the world. Of course, it is available from Shakespeare and Company. It's also available from uh, you know our bricks and mortar store, also from our, our, our website. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Professor Helen Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, Adam. It really has. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.